Hello and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast that deals with the intricacies of planning worship with and for your faith community. I'm Derek Weber, Director of Preaching Ministries at Discipleship Ministries, a general agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. And during this time of transition from virtual to in-person and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. Today I have with me as my special guest, Dr. David Lowe's, Senior Pastor of Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. Before that, he was President of Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia, and previously he held the Marbury E. Anderson Chair in Biblical Preaching at Luther Seminary, where he also served as Director of the Center for Biblical Preaching. David is the author of Preaching at the Crossroads, How the World and Our Preaching is Changing. Also, Making Sense of the Cross, Making Sense of the Christian Faith, Making Sense of Scripture, and Confessing Jesus Christ, Preaching in a Postmodern World. He speaks widely in the United States and abroad on preaching Christian faith in a postmodern world and biblical interpretation. So welcome, Dr. Lose. Thank you for being with us today. I appreciate you taking time away from your busy pastor schedule to record this podcast. But in these unusual times, we'd like to begin with our guests by simply asking, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? Well, thank you, Derek, both for the invitation to be here uh, and for asking. We're recording in uh, middle to late June, and it has been uh, 100 degrees in Minneapolis. That's the seventh time in recorded history that we've hit 100 in June, and we've had two days. So we're setting records for heat. Uh, I think a lot of uh, Churches, like a lot of schools, kind of slow down a little bit in the summer, and you can kind of catch your breath and plan for the fall. That's not true at Mount Olivet. We have a summer day camp program at our campuses in Minneapolis, and we have a, a overnight camp about four hours north of here on the north shore of Lake Superior at, at what we call Cathedral of the Pines. And so I am kind of driving back and forth to the North Shore, and when I'm here trying to hang out with our campers, as well as do all the usual. So summer is a different rhythm and tons of fun, but busy. (laughs) (laughs) So it was actually a delight to think about taking a little break and talking about preaching, which I used to talk about all the time, and now I just just do it. (laughs) You just do it, yeah. Yeah, that's part of that transition that you made again. I have to say, David, that when we first planned this podcast, uh, almost three years ago now, one of the first things that came to my mind was talking to you. It was been my dream to have you as a guest because your book, <laughs> Preaching at the Crossroads, was transformative for me. And in my teaching and workshops that I do, I always recommend that book. I don't have a whole lot of people get all excited about it for some reason. I think because it is somewhat threatening in a way. Uh, and, and I want to get around to talking about that. But but I have used it so much, and I really wanted to talk to you about these things, about preaching and the future of preaching and the influence of our culture and society. But let me start with, as you have now come back to preaching week by week, 
where do you stand on all that stuff that you wrote when you were teaching it was a it was in a different thing and now you're doing it every week you know how does all that weigh on you i guess as you're preparing to preach week after week yeah two things one thank you that was incredibly generous uh, appreciation for the book which the kind of funny story behind that book was i had been in conversation with a publishing house about writing a textbook on preaching and we were kind of discussing its shape and form for a little over a year and during that time i was just taking stock of my own preaching and the preaching we were trying to teach and when we were just about to sign the dotted line i finally wrote the publisher and said you know what i don't think we should move forward i'm not confident that what i had imagined or what i have taught to date really equips preachers for the current context we're in. Mm. And so kind of backed up and then tried to take stock of some of the lecturing and teaching and other things I was doing and realized there was no way I was ready to write a textbook, but I could at least offer some observations about some of the big changes that I had noticed, changes that had made me call into question uh, my own practice of preaching. And so that's kind of where that, where that came from. In terms of now that I'm actually in the pulpit, not just talking about it, that it's kind of something I dream all academics have to do is <laughs> actually, after they've written on something, actually do it and see if it, if it still holds up. You know, I think, I think a lot of it has held up in this, particularly my sense that for a very long time, our churches, and this is true across the Christian spectrum, but I think particularly true in the mainline context, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, I think we unconsciously benefited from a fairly strong cultural expectation that people go to church on Sundays. And a lot of our practices, a lot of our assumptions, a lot of the way we were church in the world were built around that with no ex- with no kind of conscious acknowledgement that we were set up to receive people who were already being told, whether by their parents or grandparents, a larger culture, to go to church. And that cultural support has dwindled, if not vanished, in the last 25 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And so many of our practices were just counting on it. And so I think that's where a lot of the crisis of attendance or membership and so one of the things that kind of one of the, the links between those three topics, secularism, pluralism, uh, postmodernism, was the role of Christian identity. And if you are going to church because you know you're expected to, that's its own kind of identity, but it's not very strong or it's not very linked very strongly to the, your Christian faith. And what I find again and again is the people in our church desperately want to understand what they believe. They believe, they're faithful people, but there's so little depth of understanding of the biblical witness or of the feasts and holidays of the church or of our sacraments. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to immerse people in the biblical story and to connect it to their daily lives and to offer them a useful identity, this is what being a Christian looks like, or this is why it matters, or this is the way it connects to my roles as a parent or an employee or volunteer or, you know, across the board, that is 
just front and center of every sermon I preach in a way that it probably wasn't earlier in my ministry. So uh, we'll come back to the influences from the outside. Let's let's talk about inside since since you brought it up. You know, preaching is helping people wrestle with their identity. They're they're coming, they're there, but but in your mind, you say preaching is helping explain why they're there or, or what difference it makes in their lives. Um, so you're trying to impact them from the pulpit. Does that sound right? Is that on the right track? Yep. Uh, we, you know, every single one of us has or needs or craves an identity, even if we're not consciously articulating that, you know, it's, it's, it's the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, mm-hmm. and it's often relatively unconscious, and yet it shapes the decisions we make about how we spend our time, where we invest ourselves, how we spend our money across the board. And I think there are a lot of potential sources for informing or shaping that identity, lots of mm-hmm. cultural sources in particular. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the biblical witness, the Christian tradition, has a very powerful identity to offer us about being a child of God, about being entrusted with gifts that God wants to use to care for each other and for the world, about being called to lives of meaning and purpose that stand in stark contrast to identities shaped by a consumer, mm-hmm. consumerist culture, you know, you are what you have, or a social media influenced your value rests in the number of likes that a certain post uh, or picture receives. There's tons of, of competing identities, most of which I think are not terribly life-giving. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what I see in preaching is to, to lift up a portion of the biblical text, of the biblical story, whatever passage we're, we're preaching on, and use that to open kind of a, 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 a another world mm-hmm. to immerse people into that story so that they can identify as a child of God and respond to that in the way they live. Right. And not just immerse in the Bible story, but see it as their story, you know, that they're in it too. Right? Yes. You know, yes, exactly. Well, I, I actually have heard others talk in a similar kind of way, but but the way they present it is that it is the task of preaching to inoculate the hearers against the world, what's going on out there, that we're trying to protect them from that. What I felt and read in preaching at the crossroads was that there's a dialogue going on here, that there's an interaction here, and that maybe we need to preach in such a way that engages the world, not just runs from it or hides from it or covers people up from that. Uh, it, it, was that in your mind and in your heart as you were as you were writing that text? Yeah, very much so. I think there, I don't know what a, a cultural, like I think the idea behind inoculation is that there is some pure or pristine form of Christianity that stands and lives apart from over and against the culture. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know what that would look like because Christians have always made their confessions, have always lived their lives in the world. And and we today live our lives in the world. And I think our life in the cultural moment that we're in 
will raise and ask certain questions or make certain claims about the meaning of life that Christianity is uh, inherently in in dialogue with. And so the Christianity of the fourth century, when they were hammering hammering out some of the ecumenical creeds and the Christianity Mm -hmm. of the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, or the 16th century of of Luther and the 21st century, there's strong continuity. And yet that expression, that confession of faith takes shape differently in relation to the culture. I think that some of what we're seeing today, and and this I think is what you were pointing at, in terms of Christian nationalism, is a pushback against culture as opposed to engaging with culture. That's that's what I meant by inoculation. You know, we have to stand yep. against it, kind of thing. But but you're asking for something deeper, I think, than that. Something more living in terms of and and the three words that you use: postmodernism, secularism, and pluralism. In most contexts, those would all be negative. They're all terrible things. And yet you are presenting them as this is the world and we have to engage in this world. Yeah, just to back up a sec to your first statement uh, about Christian nationalism, one of the big challenges or threats to the Christian faith was the Enlightenment and the emergence of modernity. Mm -hmm. Because suddenly you had lots of people questioning doctrine as dogma. That is, you just believe it because the church says it. Mm-hmm. And that right. changed, you know, the the uh, rise of science, scientific method, like those were just profound challenges. And then you had it extending to the biblical text and people were looking at it, not as something that fell from heaven, but it has sources and some of those sources disagree. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. all of that sort of modernism, the advent of we need rational, verifiable truth criteria was hugely threatening to church authority. Mm-hmm. And the 20th century response to that has been fundamentalism in a variety of ways, Christian nationalism being one of the most perverse. Mm-hmm. But ironically, fundamentalism as a movement accepts the terms of modernity and tries to argue against it. And so you have notions kind of out of the blue about the, the factual inerrancy of scripture, something that's not found in scripture itself anywhere. Mm-hmm. But the basic tenet is yes, if it's not factual, it's not true. So this has to be factual. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like modernity squared. Um, and I think one of the possibilities that post-modernity offers us is to say there is more to reality than what you can verify through an experiment. Or there are a variety of ways to interpret the same data, whether it's scientific data or the data of our, of our lived experiences. And so I think it it relieves us of the of the need to sort of prove Christianity and instead simply confess it to offer testimony of why this story makes more sense to us than some of the other stories that are that we've heard or are around. And so I think that that's a different way of looking at the cultural scene and it invites a different way of of interacting. But to your second point, yeah, I think what I've tried to do is is the the metaphor I, I've used at times is rather than thinking about these different challenges as problems to be fixed, assuming we already know what we need to know, we just need to do it a little better, mm-hmm. think about it instead as a mystery to be engaged and to kind of keep reminding ourselves, God loves this world. God created this world, mm-hmm. has chosen not to abandon it, is invested in this world and its people. And so maybe rather than be threatened, 
why don't we open ourselves to conversation, to dialogue, to exploration, to embracing the mystery of a very different time than our grandparents lived, but a time where the needs of humanity are are open and huge and transparent and and that there is something that we feel we have to offer, a treasure that we are invited to share. And it will be very hard to do that if it's kind of framed as an over and against. Mm -hmm. And that allows for the possibility that insight into our mystery, the mystery we understand, can come from surprising places, can come from outside, you know, from those who don't profess the faith, and yet their lived experience can kind of connect with ours or point toward ours and give us language or opportunities uh, to deepen our our own story. Not letting go of our story, but but to deepen it and, and make it more real or engaged in the world. Absolutely. Uh, and sometimes even to remind us of why our story is important. A couple of years ago, I found myself immersed in two of the long-running, long-form narrative TV shows. It was uh, The Americans and Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was watching with my then late middle school, early high school daughter, a couple of the shows she loved, just because I was curious about the stories that were shaping her imagination. It was the uh, Teen Wolf <laughs> mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. The 100. And I will admit, I grew to love Teen Wolf far more than I ever imagined. (laughs) But at one particular time, all four of those very different shows were exploring in depth the absolute necessity of forgiveness Mm. for communities to continue. Each of their plot lines had gotten to a point of where one of the characters had really hurt other characters or fallen or been broken. And it was just in a week or two, just I was amazed that these four very different shows each were grappling with the indispensable quality or need of forgiveness if we were to remain in community with each other. And I thought, goodness gracious, this is our story. <laughs> how many how many churches are kind of looking at the fragile and fractured nature of our lives together and offering forgiveness as the indispensable in a way that would be meaningful or helpful to our hearers in the way these shows were. Mm-hmm. As you said earlier, you know, God loves this world. So God is at work in this world. Why should we be surprised that God appears in, in places we may not expect or that we don't author? I, I always love Barbara Brown Taylor's An Altar in the World. You know, that whole idea mm. that says we can mm-hmm. find God at work outside, out in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would... I love all of the the big questions, you know, the background <laughs> philosophy of preaching, all that. But but I know a lot of our listeners want to talk about the practicalities of it. So so if I may turn a little bit in our conversation, what I heard in your book, although I confess that you don't give a lot of answers, you raise a lot of questions in that book, which which I found terribly provocative, um, <laughs> and also Christ-like in a way. Not not that I'm confusing you, but. Uh, but that's the approach, to ask the questions. And one of the questions I hear you asking in, in that text is, who should do the preaching? Or how should preaching be done uh, mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. that setting? Do you find yourself doing different kinds of preaching week by week at, at Mount Olivet? Or do you still continue the preaching that you learned in seminary all those years ago? That is a great question. Shortly after... 
so this book I was writing while I was still a seminary professor, mm-hmm. and my family and I attended a local Lutheran church, not uh, Mount Olivet, and the pastors there. I had had a lot of conversations with, particularly around this question of more participatory preaching mm-hmm. and that question of, of of whose voice is in the pulpit, and they took it really seriously and would across you know about a six month period would would do little homiletical experiments, just like I've been <laughs> recommending. Mm-hmm. And they varied from the kind of, of very low-level particip- participatory where there was a copy of the passage and we were invited to circle the lines that stood out to us the most. Or mm-hmm. one of them that I don't think I'll ever forget was uh, it was on uh, stewardship and using our gifts and inviting us to take out our... And, and how the way we spend our money reflects our values consciously or unconsciously. And the invitation was to take out our credit card and there were Sharpie markers in the, in the pew and to make the sign of the cross on our credit card. Hmm. Just to be a, 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 a regular living reminder of our primary identity at that in a way that informed and sometimes called into question the way we were using that credit card. So that was really great. And then one Sunday they went to now turn to your neighbor and say, or, <laughs> and talk about <laughs> And the first thing that popped in my hi- my mind was, oh, no, <laughs> you know, like, this, is the, yeah. this is the last yeah. thing I want to do. <laughs> and my second thought was, it's a good thing my wife's not here today. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, she she might have just gotten up and walked off. <laughs> you yeah. know, so I think what I've and then the c- congregation I've come into Mount Olivet is uh, is a very, very traditional congregation. And so it, it has been a very good reminder of how powerful context is. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I have found is that my sense of participation has been less in the pulpit, kind of turn to your neighbor and say. Right. But what we have done is we've been begun putting out short conversational videos on Wednesdays ahead of the Sunday text where two um, uh, staff of preachers, two of us will talk a little bit about what we hear, what we're thinking about with regard to preaching, and then we'll close with two questions and invite our folks to reflect on those questions and then bring them with them on Sundays to sort of prime the pump. Mm. And I have been amazed at how well-received that is. That is, people enjoy, in a sense, getting a leg up on Sunday morning or having a chance to start a conversation. So they're not only listening to one voice, they've already heard from two voices. They've been thinking themselves. Sometimes we'll, if they're already in small groups, we'll invite the small groups to focus on those same questions. And so to broaden the conversation in that sense. Another thing I've done is at times meet with some of our different groups that are already existing and talk about the passages and listen to them and kind of invite their insights and the questions they have. And, and that always informs the way I'm thinking about the preaching. And sometimes, you know, I'll say, in fact, as one of the guys at the men's Bible study said, mm-hmm. you know, that has stayed with me. And so to try to bring in more voices that way as well. Yeah, I think, I think people always sit up straighter when they hear themselves quoted or referred to, <laughs> some, sometimes out of fear, but usually out of hope, I think. Well, I I have talked for a long time about the internal dialogue of preaching and the external dialogue, and the the internal is what's going on in the moment, and how do we make that as engaging as possible, but also, as you're saying, how do we expand it beyond the preaching moment? You know, how do we include both ahead and and then afterwards, talkback sessions and all that kind of stuff? And I think all of it is 
it's fair game for enlarging the conversation so that people really feel heard and connected with that. But you mentioned the videos that you send out. Uh, we've just been through the pandemic. I don't know if we're through yet, but, mm. and a lot of us went virtual uh, for that period of time. Does that impact your preaching, thinking about, I mean, obviously in the, in the little videos that you do now, it's a different format than standing in a pulpit on Sunday morning. But, but do you think about virtual preaching, online preaching as different than what you do on uh, a Sunday morning in person? Or are they a part of the same? Or how, what's the influence, I guess, of a virtual church on your preaching? Yeah, I um, just this morning at a meeting with some of my staff, we were talking about, you know, we've been doing, as I think a lot of church leaders have, an assessment of all the different forms of reaching our people that we sort of scrambled to do and then worked at for two years to engage people at a distance mm -hmm. and trying to assess which of those we want to bring forward, where do we want to invest time and resources to do those better. And at one point I said, you know, five years ago, how many videos did we produce annually? And the answer was two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we right. we yeah. put together a stewardship video and we'd often have a little intro or preview or invitation at Christmas. Mm. During the, the pandemic, we were putting out literally, I mean, no joking, 150 videos. Mm. So, you know, from two to 150 is <laughs> warp speed. Yeah. And, and I think, just to kind of reflect on uh, uh, on the way that shapes your sense of relationship. It's it's. I don't know how much of the content or form. No, that's not true. I think the heart of the sermons was pretty similar. I think uh, our focus on preaching was sharpened by the the deep mm -hmm. needs a lot of people named of feeling isolated. Mm -hmm. uh, and apart from their church and the struggles they were having that kind of sharpened the message in a particular bent. I think I found myself doing even more sort of brief or mini teaching, uh, particularly around when it was the sermon as part of a larger worship service mm -hmm. and recognizing that some of our, many of our hearers were Man Olivet members and they understood what we did or what was familiar to them. And and we found increasingly many were not. Mm -hmm. They were uh, all kinds of people found our website and Sunday services. And so began kind of crafting short, very short introductions to the confession or to the creed or to the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. So instead of just saying, um, you know, let us join in the, our, right. the Lord, our, the prayer, Repeat Lord taught us. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would write short little intros like, when Jesus' disciples asked him how best to pray, he taught them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. Let us pray together in hope and confidence. Very short, that we'd never ever even occurred to us to do because the kind of immediacy of the event makes you feel that well, everyone knows what we're doing. And so that was an interesting reminder, and it has mm -hmm. shaped my preaching more generally in terms of paying attention to what I assume people know or are following and when it might be helpful just to back up a step and have a sentence or no more of a paragraph setting some context or teaching, not because they need to know stuff for the sake of knowing stuff, but because they will hear the good news, the gospel of their identity as a beloved child of God better 
if they have just a little background to make sense of things. So that's been really kind of interesting for me to think about how vital the, the, the didactic or teaching element of preaching is. Again, not in a sense of, here's the topic I want to teach you today, but to not assume quite as much as I had assumed previously mm-hmm. and just offer a little bit of background about the Apostle Paul or what a Pharisee is or you know, all those things just to help people, to help us. I mean, when someone hears you describe the Pharisees as the board of vestry or elders or church council or mm-hmm. Sunday school teachers, they listen a little differently when you just hear Pharisee, right. you know? So that's been, that's been really interesting to me how much more, how many more of those many moments of teaching there are in the hope that the, the gospel of our identity in Christ is clearer. Mm-hmm. That that's part of that fitting into the story that you were talking about earlier. That's you know, where am I, and who are these people, and how do I engage with them, interact with them, uh, and and I need to know them in order to be able to to respond to them, or listen to them, or or hear their input from that. We we often divide people up in the Bible stories into who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, you know, mm-hmm. and, and yet they're all. They're all us, you know, and, and we stand with, with different ones. And so helping people find their place, I think, is still a vital thing. So uh, do a little prognosticating for me. What is the future of preaching? You know, you talked about the changes that are happening. When when I moved from Indiana to Nashville, I was coming a little closer to the Bible Belt, and I feel like I stepped back in time, and the churches are still more full than they were up north. But but those same trends are happening even even here, and people are seeing less a need to be a part of that. So what's going to happen to preaching, or what what are pre, how do preachers respond to that? Is preaching going to look different in the future, ten years, twenty years from now? Are we going to maintain this thing, you know, as our little island, uh, and and do the same things that we've always done? What what's your feel about that? Yeah, I think. I think I would distinguish briefly between preaching, what we do on a Sunday morning, opening up a biblical passage, and the, maybe the larger category of proclamation, um, of sharing the good news of Christ. I'm not sure that preaching as an act will be fundamentally unrecognizable or, or, or very, very different. And it's one of the elements of the Christian tradition that has stayed pretty consistent. I mean, the the length may have changed or the form of communication it was modeled after, you know, in the 40s or 50s, it was often modeled after a university lecture or, Mm -hmm. you know, might be shorter, might be more story-based. But I think think it is Walter Ong, the philosopher, who said, there are few things more powerful than one person speaking to another to share truth to tell your truth, your story to someone else. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of why preaching as a task has endured and been so dependable, durable, not unchanging, but consistent over two millennia now. Mm -hmm. But I do think proclamation will be different. And the sense of one of the things we've learned was there are a lot of ways we can communicate with our people and share with them the good news of Christ, not just when the next potluck is or, 
or right. when Sunday school starting. That that's important too, but can really witness to our faith in Christ in so many more ways mm-hmm. uh, through video, through podcasts, through written devotions, through social media, through. Like there's so many more ways, and I just don't see us going back to imagining that Sunday morning is the only place that we get mm-hmm. to talk about God, mm-hmm. and and it still is a primary place. So how do these other communications not replace Sunday worship and preaching, but fill in the gaps for those who are missing or away? or prepare people for a a richer, more full experience, or connect one Sunday experience to another, Mm -hmm. or, you know, and and the list kind of goes on. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that larger sense of how do we engage people in this question of who are you and and what does your life mean and why does it matter to engage them with the answers the Christian tradition offers, powerful answers or powerful responses I think we will not be as likely to limit ourselves to the pulpit or the Sunday morning sanctuary. Mm-hmm. I, I like that distinction. And I also like the good word for preachers. You know, we haven't worked our way out of a job yet. We still have, still have a task <laughs> to do. Uh, but let, uh, let me get real practical as we finish up here. Um, mm-hmm. Preacher comes to you and says, what's one thing I can do to make my preaching better? What, what's the one thing that you suggest to, to preachers to concentrate on or focus on or begin with? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what if I offer three briefly? Okay. <laughs> That's a good preacher response. <laughs> um, I think the first is... And I think we I think we do this, but I don't think we can do it often enough, which is to really, at the end of the day, have our sermons land in or be centered in the profoundness of God's love for each and all of us wherever we are. The I still am surprised when I feel like, boy, this is a tough text. I think I'll just do a bread and butter. God loves you, accepts you, forgives you, <laughs> and yeah. and try to do it with a little more creativity than that. But when I sort of open that up and just say, you need to know whatever's going on in your life right now, God loves you. Whatever mm-hmm. you're struggling with, God accepts you. Whatever you have done or has been done to you, God forgives you and sees the very best in you. It blows me away how powerful that word still is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's powerful because um, because it's rare. It's not the word you hear at work. It's not the word you hear in the culture. It's often tragically not the words we share at home, but here is a place to be rooted into that. And it's sort of like uh, each and every week, I want to find a way to say to my folks, if you don't hear anything else, hear this, listen Mm -hmm. up, Mm -hmm. that offering of of God's profound love. The second thing I've already referenced is just, I think we forget what we didn't know before we went to seminary, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and so to kind of slow down and, and, you know, I remember doing a, a, sermon on epiphany and just taking a paragraph and talking about where epiphany came and the number of people who came out and said, Oh my word, I never knew that. It's just to allow that my kind of dictum, people are desperate to understand what they already believe Mm. and to allow, see the sermon as a part of that. And then the third is to have a little fun, Mm. which is not, I'm not saying tell jokes. I mean, be able to take a couple of risks, be able to have fun, be able to explore a range of emotions from the very intense to the much lighter, poke a little fun at yourself, 
employ imagination, try out some things that are different. It, they won't all land exactly the way you hoped, but our people, we all can fall into a dominant pattern. Our people love to see us stretch a little. They just, mm-hmm. it, it surprises them and surprises one of the, the best ways to open hearts and minds to hear something different. Beautiful. One of the things I always try to emphasize is that preaching is fundamentally a relationship. So how do we enter into that relationship with, with the people to whom we speak? Do we love them? Even the ones we don't mm-hmm. know, even the ones we wrestle with, but do we love mm-hmm. them because Christ loves them? And, uh, uh, and that's what I hear you saying. Be engaged, be present, uh, and, and be free uh, with that. I, I appreciate that, David. Thank you. Uh, I, I cannot recommend more highly your book. Um, I'm waiting for the revised version as, from from your position. Now, I'm sure you have plenty of time to do writing, but uh, but this this idea of preaching at the crossroads, I think it is something that we as preachers need to wrestle with constantly. What is it that we're trying to do? How can we do it better? Uh, not just not just tweak it, but to rethink it and 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 approach that. And and you provide a forum for doing that. So um, I will, again, recommend that. Thank you for the time. Thank you for, for connecting with us, David, and, and we wish you well at Mount Olivet uh, and hope, hope things are continuing to blossom and enjoy your driving up to the Cathedral of, cathedral of the Pines, Cathedral of the Woods. That's it. Yep. Okay. Cathedral of the Pines. Cathedral of the Pines. In, enjoy that this summer uh, and we'll look for more from you. Thank you, Derek, very much. Thanks for the invitation to be here. And thank you for reaching out to preachers during a really challenging time and offering your support to the folks who are doing this good work. Well, that's what we do. And and, and we want to be with preachers. We want to help them. Um, so thank you for those who are listening. Thank you for being a part of this. We hope it's been helpful to you. And remember, you can always find more information at our website at umcdiscipleship.org. And so until next time. We here will be praying for and with you and your congregation. So may God continue to bless your worship ministry as you continue to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.